You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. In this episode, a recording of the final event from Framing Aging, a clinical, cultural and social dialogue. This hybrid conference took place on the 2nd and 3rd of December 2021 in UCD Humanities Institute and featured 15 speakers across seven panels. Framing Aging is supported by Welcome Trust. For more information on the project and to access podcasts and videos from all our previous events, check out the project website at framingaging.ucd.ie. This episode features panel 3, Open Slash Closed Body. The speakers were Julia Twigg from the University of Kent, who presented on Frameworks and Paradigms, Tensions and Reflections. Paul Higgs from University College London presented on The Aging Body, Considerations on Difference and Corporate Reality. And Desmond J. Tobin from UCD, who presented on Our Skin, A Lifetime of Comfort and Conflict. Um, well, I'm delighted to be here, but I'm very sad not to be over with you. Um, one of the things I was really looking forward to was precisely the thing that the opportunity to have a real conversation and to talk in a more informal way about the fascinating themes that we've been discussing over the last few sessions. So I'm really sorry not to be here um, with you, as it were, directly. Um, I decided not to give a formal paper about the work on dress or embodiment and meaning um, that I'd thought about before, because I had hoped to be at, directly at it, at the event, and therefore able to sort of engage in more questions. So what I'm going to do is just put forward really some questions and some provocations, as it were, and I hope to have some kind of discussion. I hope at least you can have some kind of discussion, perhaps with me too, also. So that's that's the format. So I'm going to be actually quite brief, so I think that may help. One of the most heartening things that's happened in age studies in the last decade has been the development of new paradigms informed by a wider set of theories and methodological approaches, bridging traditional disciplinary boundaries, particularly between the humanities and social sciences. And of course, these events have been a, a prime example of that. A variety of terms have been used to capture these developments. The term I tend to use is cultural gerontology, and with Wendy Martin, I edited the Routledge Handbook on that subject that aimed to draw together and present this broad area of work. And we're actually in the, currently in the process of commissioning a new second edition. And that's provoked us to think more about the development of the field and with it about its terminology and how this relates to other terms and other new sources of work. As I mentioned, I tend to use the word cultural gerontology, but there are many others in the field, um, medical humanities, material ger materials gerontology, humanistic gerontology, aging studies, historical gerontology, critical gerontology. Each of them, I think, has its distinctive um, character or flavor, and each is formed by distinctive forces. And I think it's important to recognize those formative forces. Sometimes they're intellectual ones in the form of a particular set of theories or key conceptual ideas. And here I'm thinking of the influence of post-structuralist theories or the massive long-term impact of feminist ideas and gender theory more generally. 
or perhaps distinctive conceptual developments. And I'm thinking here, raising my own work, on theorizing around embodiment or materiality. Sometimes these formative forces are rooted in social change in relation to older people. For example, the arrival of consumption negotiated identities and the emergence of debates around the third age. Or sometimes they are formed through the politics of academic development, particularly in relation to the state. And I'm thinking here not just of social policy formations, which have of course been particularly influential in structuring social gerontology, but also of funding bodies and the political forces that increasingly shape their decisions. The focus on relevance and on output and on instrumental forms of research aimed at policy questions. Some of the results of this, I think, can be somewhat unexpected. For example, um, some of the push in the humanities towards engaging with age has come, it seems to me at least, from this drive to be relevant, to show application in the context of this funding environment. But it's had the result of widening and humanizing the territory of age studies, drawing it further away from the relentless focus on policy outcomes, often characterized social science work in the field, so the shift to a narrow focus on relevance in the humanities has acted, in fact, to enlarge the space in the social sciences. I want now to um, pose a series of questions I hope we can discuss in relation to these developments. First, in the case of these frameworks, do the different labels matter? Is it just a question of let many flowers bloom? Do we just have a broad area of endeavor, perhaps united by an interest in age, in which different disciplinary traditions do not really matter? Should we just put forward our work and let others try and resolve any differences between, for example, a qualitative interview study and an exploratory art performance? Or between an analysis of changes in painting styles and fine art and an argument about the social and economic location of older people? Do they all just contribute to a general tapestry of knowledge? Or is that metaphor of tapestry misleading since the threads are so fundamentally different? Second, what about methodology, evidence, data, interpretation? How far do we need to address those questions directly, head on? What do we do about the clashes? Third, there are also issues around how we define our subject. Is it old age? That traditionally has, I think, been the focus of much of the work in this area, and it characterizes the study of many of us in the room. It's sometimes encapsulated in the word gerontology, a word that is itself highly problematic with its origins in medical or scientific discourse, though later taken across into the social sciences. It's got, we know, a negative off-putting tone to it. It's rarely, if ever, claimed by those who fall within its remit. Gerontology as a word does actually define, but also limit the scope of what is studied. The focus on old age can also have the effect of separating out and perhaps fetishizing the state of old age, dividing it off from the rest of life in a way that can reflect entrenched ageism. By contrast, work that's framed in terms of the life course avoids that difficulty and connects old age with the whole arc of life. But that too poses limitations and losses. The question remains as to whether old age is a specific state or social category that needs to be reflected directly in our analysis. Maybe we gain from this in analytic clarity in a way that would be lost if we simply studied the life course 
or aging as a pervasive element within life. Fourth, the question of whether old age is properly our subject also raises the issue of intellectual isolation. Some of the most interesting new work in this area comes from cognate but different fields. I'm thinking here of new work in science and technology studies that's presented new questions of trans and post-human analysis. Fifth, by and large, the passage of intellectual influence has tended, I think, to be from other areas into age studies. It'd be good if we could see the reverse occurring more often, whereby work on age influences other fields. I think there's a great potential for this. I think many areas of analysis are simply blind to the central significance of age to them. Age is a crucial structuring factor and one that's all too often overlooked. They simply do not see it. And there's a whole set of reasons that are familiar to us underlying that form of blindness. Sixth and last, how far is this a politically engaged field? Certainly the tradition of critical gerontology has been more directly political in the sense that it openly aims to critique a deficient social order. In this it draws on longer heritage from Marxism and other radical thinking. Initially, I think cultural gerontologies may seem to have been less politically engaged, though writers like Margaret Gallet would rebut that, certainly. Certainly, cultural gerontology, with its initial interest in consumption, the media, lifestyles of third ages, was sometimes presented as apolitical, and indeed undermining of the political seriousness that's characterized social policy work on aid. But the subjects that is addressed, and it is made visible, and I, I was very struck by our conversation earlier about incontinence, are in fact profoundly political. The turn to culture, rather than weakening our political engagement on this, in fact deepens it, allowing us, for example, to access new theorizing on embodiment, to understand and contextualize how cultural norms explicitly marginalize and render less visible the subjective experience of age. Even where the political critique is not openly present, I suggest it's often implicitly so. Medical humanities, for example, contains a clear moral and political aim in its wish to humanise the response of medicine to older people. It aims at and seeks social change in its field. In a similar way, art and literature can often present more radical challenges to our understanding than ones deriving more simply from evidence or data. There's a visceral quality to art that allows it to be much more profoundly searching and indeed transgressive in ways that have to be seen as political. So I, those are the questions I wanted to raise. I don't want to conclude at this point. I just would like to provoke some kind of discussion, but maybe that will come at the end. Thank you. Well, thanks very much. That Obviously, we'll have the three talks and I'll bring them together, but you've certainly given us a very uh, stimulating palette of, of, of points which are absolutely core uh, to what we're talking about, and I'm sure they're going to generate a lot of uh, discussion. And so now, Paul, The Aging Body, Considerations and Difference in Corporeality. Thank you. Thank you very much for um, organising this conference, which has finally taken... Place, and I'm very, very pleased to have the opportunity to speak in person and to actually engage in a lot of the conversations which make you know, face-to-face conferences that much more valuable than often just being able to see other people on the screen. So I'm very, very grateful to be here, and already it's been very stimulating. 
What I want to talk about uh, this afternoon is in some senses a, a similar set of ideas to the ones that Julia has just outlined, but thinking more specifically from the point of view of a sociology of ageing. That's my title. I, I was allowed to choose my own title, and that's what I think I do. And I think socio the sociology of ageing may actually have different kinds of a, approaches to the issues of interdisciplinarity and the kind of the way that it can engage with the humanities. Also, what I need to point out is that my interdisciplinarity is also extended the other way, because as you can see, and I quite enjoy the fact that I'm a member of the Faculty of Brain Sciences at UCL. Now, this is just pure historical accident of teaching medical sociology. But the point is, it means that my, many of my interdisciplinary activities actually are with people who are from the clinical sciences. Obviously, in a psychiatry department, they're primarily interested in things like dementia, which is probably why most of the recent work that Chris Gilead and myself have done has been on the fourth age. But I did start off working in a geriatric medicine department. And so the concerns for how you know, the sociology of ageing relates to the assumptions of geriatric medicine was also behind one of the other books that I wrote with Chris, which is Cultures of Ageing. Because when we started working on that, we became very aware that the idea of who old people were was very different in geriatric medicine than it was in society. You know, just the, the simple term old age pensioner and the fact that it no longer really resonates in British society in the 21st century was a good example of that. So my interest is in kind of like how does interdisciplinarity work both ways? And because I'm a sociologist, and I think this is one of the things I've had to think about in terms of the questions we were asked to consider in this um, you know, presentation, how does interdisciplinarity work? And how has participating in this series of, of, of seminars and workshops influenced my thinking? That I'm, I'm taking an approach which says, well, what does, socio what does the sociology of ageing offer? And what... Can it you know, be used for by people particularly coming from the humanities? Now, in some senses, as, as you will have seen, that my presentation last year was very much about the idea of the body. And from the discussion we've already had this afternoon, one of the things that you know, is operating is how does the ageing body affect both sociology but the humanities. And we had a discussion earlier about um, abjection and, to a certain degree, frailty. Now, one of the things that, taking from the clinical sciences that was important to my thinking, was that there is such a thing as the corporeality of ageing something that is different from the embodiment of ageing. And that one of the things that, you know, may be a topic of discussion is how do we actually understand that corporeality and not reduce it to just how people live their lives. Now, 
This issue of experience I'll come back to later and I think is very important in kind of fusing or what was that famous phrase? Yeah, fusing horizons, the, you know, the, the, the idea from Gadamer. Now, I think that one of the things that therefore has to be accepted and certainly um, working in the, in the department I do is that we have to accept that not only is there old age, but there is an ageing, you know, whether it's a process or whether it's just the accumulated damage, that there is something called ageing. And, and I've pointed this out in other papers, a bit worried about the way that age studies is used because it actually explicitly says, and often people don't seem to be aware of this, that there is no such thing as ageing. Ageing is in itself a decline ideology which should be resisted. Now, I think this then has serious problems for uh, both work with the natural and clinical sciences, but also with the humanities, because by not actually acknowledging the importance that there is something called ageing, which then is represented as old age, it kind of like removes the subject that we're looking at. Now, you could say, well, maybe that's good. Maybe there's some writers in the past pointed out we shouldn't actually talk about ageing or old age at all. We should just actually have you know, a, a discussion about people. But I think that we do need to actually understand that there is a phenomenological aspect to ageing which does have, in a biological sense, a deleterious quality. Now, it's quite interesting that even in sociology that focus has been challenged. I wrote, recently wrote a contribution to a key concepts of medical sociology and that point, which I imagine is familiar to everybody who's been trained in clinical medicine, Strayler's concepts of what is ageing, they really resent, well, resisted me including that in a definition of ageing. So I think it is important. But also, it then plays into the discussions we've been having about abjection and to a degree, frailty. Now, abjection, uh, one thing I'd like to clarify is that when Chris and I are writing about abjection, it's not that we are actually saying the old should be abject. And in fact, we're also not arguing that individuals are necessarily abject. What we're talking about it as a social, is a vector of the social imaginary. And it's not that that it's just it's something I think I would like to clarify because in some sense if people then say, oh, well, you're saying this is actually happening and I know this person who isn't like that. And I think that's absolutely true. What we're trying to do is we're trying to make a distinction between a cultural uh, space called the third age and a social imaginary called the fourth age. And hopefully that that helps understand some of the conflicts around ageing that actually occur. But it's also that, you know, um, useful for understanding some of the processes that we can uh, see in terms of the research that we're doing. Now, obviously, more recently, I've been doing a lot of research on cognitive impairment and experience of things like mild cognitive impairment. And what is very interesting there is that the social imaginary operates and can be uh, used as a research tool. Now, I'm talking in the specifically sociological terms, but I think that from what we've been hearing this afternoon, 
it's also present in lots of literary criticism, in kind of like lots of cultural studies, in photography, and I think that is a, that's, a, that's a contribution. So what I'd like to say is that when we're thinking about uh, the contribution of sociology to interdisciplinarity, I think that's one area that we can kind of like work from. However, I would also like to um, do a little bit of self-promotion because part of the request was how has these, how have these uh, seminars helped my own thinking about engagement with the humanities, which is what that's supposed to say, but unfortunately it's kind of <laughs> hidden by the thing. And I was very lucky to edit this year a issue of the University of Toronto Quarterly on ageism. And as you could see, it's at a health humanities approach. I did it with Marlene Goldman, who is a professor of English at Toronto University. And we have, I think, a very good collection of papers on ageism, which have tried to kind of like tease out some of the issues that both the social sciences and the humanities um, are dealing with. And so I would, I would uh, recommend people to go and visit uh, the web page and look at the, at the papers because I think there's a, a very good collection. Now, I've chosen two um, papers for, I think, illustrative purposes. And they are one written by Susan Pickard there, who's sitting there. <laughs> and what she has tried to do is to try and engage with the theory of the fourth age, but looking at literary biographies and then looking at one of the issues that comes with the abjection of the fourth age and how those writers have dealt with it. Now, it's their, 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 it's their first person accounts of caring for an older person who has some of these age-related you know, challenges, difficulties, whatever you want to describe. And I think that it's very, very useful because of the way in which it shows how theory can be applied to um, people's lives and maybe enrich them. So that what, one, of, what, one of the things that, that Susan does is to bring out an aspect, I don't know if she actually probably would see it in this way, that is also a component of our four vectors of the fourth age, which, which is the imperative to care. Now, she talks about it in kind of religious terms, but one of the things that Chris and I agree about with this term is not that we can say what that imperative to care is, how it should be realised or how it should be motivated, but that one of the things that needs to be done is to kind of like be aware of it. Now, we're aware that it can be a double-edged sword, that the... Uh, imperative to care can create the problem that it's trying to solve and this is always one of the difficulties about providing care and this is the, something that the disability movement have pointed out that your care can be our oppression but I think that one of the things that does connect our theory of the fourth age with a positive uh, understanding is that we should be 
aware that we do have a, an imperative to care and that that doesn't necessarily have to be something that is reciprocated. Now, this is, is where Chris and I have different views on what that actually means. But if you actually look at our paper on abjection, that's where we're, we're going. We ha we, Chris, as people who know as well probably know that Chris and I don't agree on a lot of things, and so we actually have to have formula that get the point across, not necessarily the path to that uh, point. <laughs> So there, 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 there's, there's an insight there. The other point, the other paper that I want to kind of like just raise is also connected to our theory, and it's written by Chris, and it's something where he, that he was very interested. You have to remember that, that Chris Gilliard is by background a psychologist, so consequently he's very interested in the individual and how the individual deals with ageing, how the individual deals with old age. And one of the things that he has looked at in this paper is Simone de Beauvoir's old age. And he uh, makes a case that not only does Simone de Beauvoir you know, not want to actually experience old age, she's actually very critical about it, but that she actually brings up a, a, an important aspect of um, our understanding of ageing in that we cannot actually be um, capable of understanding old age and ageing as anything other than something that happens to others. We can only see it through others. It's not that we ourselves experience it and then incorporate it into our lives. It's always something that is out there. Now, I'm pointing to this as an example of engage, you know, both papers of engaging with themes that come from the humanities, using humanities uh, kind of references, but drawn from theories such as that the, of the fourth age. So that's my little um, advertisement for what I did last year during lockdown. I want to finish by coming back to this question about corporeality and a term that I'm sure is very um, prevalent in uh, humanities departments and difference. And I think that one of the things that connects the points I've made about corporeality is that they um, can be seen as aspects of, of, you know, uh, 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 of malevolent discourses. They can be seen as aspects of you know, uh, unwanted gazes, all of these things. And it's not that those arguments should be disregarded. It's just that they become, I think, problematized when we're talking about old age. You know, is old age an identity is a question we have to ask ourselves. And is it, is, it, is it an ascribed identity, i.e. you're old, or is it something that people want to actually choose and to use? Now, I'm asking this as a question in much the same way that Julia is asking questions. It's not, you know, I have, a, I have a, an answer, but I don't think that everybody has to have the same answer. But I think it is also connected 
to something that is very unpopular in, I think, both the social sciences and the humanities, and that is the term senescence. But it's a term that is not used by people. It's used in clinical medicine, at, but it's still quite unpopular because of its overall negativity. But if we don't actually have that idea, often many of the things that we're talking about, particularly moral questions, don't really get resolved. And here there's a third question I think that, that, that needs to be thought about. Is how does the experience of ageing impact on old age? Now I've made a distinction earlier in this meeting between ageing and old age. Now ageing is at one level a process that we have little control over. Old age we can actually have redefined in front of our eyes. You know, just the pension age can be changed just by you know, fiat. So I think that it's quite important to actually think about that. And this is where I think the humanities and those aspects of cultural gerontology are very useful in bringing that experience to our attention. But it also, I think, begs a question. And here I'm using a a distinction made by Marion Barnes in her book on disability between mere differences and bad differences. And I think this is something that has become, I think, quite fraught in the social sciences because whilst we can talk about difference, we give it all an equivalence. Whereas what Marion Barnes actually points out is that we have to face up that there are some things that are bad differences, that they make things more difficult. You know, I would actually you know, point out that you know, the issue of dementia is not something that is treated with equanimity by those people who are worried about memory loss, and particularly at the kind of the stages whereby they're trying to find out how to actually deal with it. Now, you can say, well, this is society's problem, and certainly there is a social dimension to it, but that issue of senescence and that question of, is it a bad difference, at least need to be discussed. You know, the, in another part of my life, I work on the idea of personhood, and one of the things about personhood as a set of ideas, it becomes an articulation within social care, to get round the problem that there may be bad differences. We actually, you know, you, we treat people as they, we think they would like. Now, certainly I'm not decrying that, but I think that it's, you know, a projection in often. We don't know what it's like to have severe dementia. There's nobody coming back and telling us what it was like. So consequently, we're making a number of, uh, of statements and... It is an intellectual uh, minefield, as apart from anything else, you know, talking about personhood, because it's used as a way of really saying there's a selfhood. But we know that if you, call, if you talk about people's personhood, you're actually saying that it's not a full self, and that this is, this is kind of like a, um, a problematic debate. But it is as simply as that. 
So just to bring this all together, I think that what I have learned from my engagement with interdisciplinarity is that you have to bring in stuff that may be uncomfortable for your own discipline. But at the same time, you have also got to, I think, use your own discipline to interrogate what might be useful and what may not be useful about other approaches. And I think that one of the things that we can talk about in terms of these um, seminars is that it has brought to attention the interplay between you know, status, corporeality and experience. And that these are manifest in different ways, in different cultural forms. You know, I'm much more kind of, uh, of an expert in social theory than I am maybe in literary theory, but I can see how these ideas uh, can uh, help each other. And it is quite useful for me to hear how people will have used the concept we've used and drawn on in a different uh, arena in, you know, say, studies of literature. So it's actually, I think, very beneficial to have that feedback, um, I suppose, loop. I'll finish there and hope that uh, people will actually have questions emerging from it. So lastly, uh, my namesake, uh, Des Tobin, uh, our skin, a lifetime of com comfort and conflict. Thank you very much, uh, Desmond. And thank you very much, uh, Anne, for including me in this um, uh, workshop. This is uh, my very first foray into interdisciplinarity in my uh, context, at least uh, in the humanities. I've worked with, thank you very much, I've worked with uh, engineers and others in the context of skin, but it's the very first time I've been in this particular type of uh, conference, so it's, it's exciting and daunting uh, for me. I'm also conscious that I'm the only thing separating you from your dinners, which is, <laughs> which is probably also a little bit uh, daunting. Um, I've kind of defaulted to type here in terms of how I've kind of set up my presentation by presenting slides as kind of data slides, so uh, please, please uh, um, bear with me. I don't think I could freewheel like the rest of you uh, in, with one or two slides for, for 20 minutes. So uh, that's really reflecting my, uh, my background as a biologist. Um, I also struggled enormously in putting this slide deck together, and I changed the order of these slides, i say, about 10 times. I still think that the talk doesn't really flow, and that's really because I'm still complexed about, um, from a biologist's point of view, and perhaps projecting as to what I think is relevant in your discipline, um, the difference between our perception of beauty and our perception of uh, beautiful skin, for example, and our perception of health when we look at someone in terms of their skin. Because from my perspective, skin is a proxy uh, for full body health and I think also psychological health. Obviously, farmers have constantly um, uh, you know, used the, uh, the pelt or the coat of their horses and, and cattle as a proxy for for the value of the beast in terms of getting somebody to part with their money. So we, I think, also, as animals, infer some degree of value uh, to the totality of the body on the basis of how we perceive the quality or the beauty or the, 
symmetry or whatever of, of the skin. So with that, I'll just kind of uh, work my way through these slides. So I've taken kind of an approach of dipping into um, you know, the, the medicine side of it, as you can see by the stethoscope there over the anatomical picture, a little bit into the aesthetic uh, in the center with uh, the picture uh, of Sinead O'Connor there from 1992. I think she was about 25 at the time. Um, both the flower and the thorns of that aesthetic, because of course you could be a heavy metal fan with aesthetic as well as a Laura Ashley fan. Um, and then uh, moving toward kind of the health side of things in, in, the, in the picture on the right in terms of what could be, could be coming down the track in terms of you know, potential risk for cancer or, or other sort of health issues relating to the skin. I've kind of stolen, um, I've kind of plagiarised uh, the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock here by, by commenting on these three particular lines. Uh, and indeed there will be time to prepare the faces to meet the faces that you meet, a time for you and a time for me. And I think there's really a lot of how we live as individuals around that kind of uh, imposter or, or pretense in terms of how we interact with each other through our physical forms and our, and our faces. Uh, and I think uh, the face in particular uh, dominates um, a lot of the skin biologists' um, kind of uh, time rather than uh, you know, the vast majority of the rest of the body. So uh, obviously in, in our kind of Western hypermediated world, there's a huge amount of chatter around how to judge individuals, you know, basically, um, you know, how superficial are we judging people, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, the skin is, is, is that superficial uh, covering to some extent. Uh, of course, we have uh, constant reminders from the wise um, that we should uh, be far more um, accepting of oneself and understanding what it means to be beautiful in terms of oneself. But... Uh, you also have the inevitable um, impact of how you uh, feel you're, 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 you're dealing with your life in response to other people's view. And I thought that was quite interesting in terms of the very recent uh, kind of downshift in personal grooming that we see during COVID, which is very interesting, um, and how it has liberated some people to, to be more natural as they see, um, as they would like to see themselves. Um, but interesting, this particular woman says, well, she stopped caring about what other adults think about her, but she's still very concerned about what her kids think about her. And at the end of the presentation, this view of how your children view you uh, comes up in, an, in, an, in another uh, unpredictable, uh, unpredicted uh, context as well. So we are also seeing during COVID this opportunity to see different, different, different views. This is quite interesting uh, to me because, you know, I'm, I'm kind of living through a, a period where, um, you know, equal access of males and females to the workplace and to everything else has become to the fore. But, but it's still quite interesting to me to what extent there are some kind of fibs and um, mini lies being promulgated even within these political constructs that are still very unequal uh, in terms of the, uh, in, you know, the way men and women uh, uh, go to this. But I just want to go way back to a really basic, primordial and primitive um, part of our brain here in terms of how we actually see ourselves and how we see others. And so there is something uh, super special about the face, it's super intense, super uh, innate, and we see faces everywhere. Um, and I think we can't underestimate the, the, you know, the searing power of that throughout our entire life, regardless of how much intellectualization we go on about this. There is part of the brain that actually is this so-called fusiform gyrus that is uh, predisposed to 
being, uh, you know, really, really um, besotted by, by the face and, and how we then view, uh, you know, attractiveness of the face in, in the context of uh, reward and other decision-making. And I show this image because it just came out on the internet quite recently about the impact this is happening in, uh, in, 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 in a world where, where young people are not mixing uh, in a more chaotic environment of, 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 uh, of uh, you know, um, you know, student union bars, etc., etc., at all times of the day and night, but instead are seeing their, their equal opposite numbers on, on Instagram or whatever, uh, just how gullible we are as humans in terms of how we, we see the face in here and what we expect others to be truly like versus how they're actually doctored. And this has become so severe now that there's an MP in Britain, a guy called Luke Evans, who's trying to get a bill on the statute books uh, to force internet companies to indicate when the image has been actually altered. Um, and uh, this is, is, is a very important concept. Um, the other thing I just want to mention briefly here is, you know, how much of this is hardwiring? How much of this can we stand back and say, look, I'm not accepting this anymore. It's just a, um, a form of, uh, you know, brainwashing or, or, or whatever. But it's very important to indicate throughout history there has been an association around avoidance of other individuals through the skin because it usually inferred uh, contagion or some infectious disease, the, the classic leper uh, colonies. And there's some... Uh, you know, skin disease today like vitiligo that reminds, at least in India, of leprosy and uh, people with vitiligo will be avoided because they feel that they, might, that they may actually pick up um, something like a contagious disease. So these aversive behaviours are hardwired in terms of, you know, avoiding the risk of not only killing yourself but also your family uh, view uh, via contagion. There is now a new website over the last few years, a, a new organisation called Changing Faces that has tried now to break down that kind of maybe intrinsic fear uh, of altered or, 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 or disturbed skin um, as not being necessarily uh, unsafe to interact with. Uh, as you can see here, individuals that have had uh, you know, accidents or burns or whatever on, on, on their face. And of course, it will all depend on what type of individual you are you know, in terms of... of what kind of tendencies you're likely to exhibit in this particular area in terms of whether you have a dys dys dysmorphia type of a, of, of a personality, uh, whether um, you need a lot of approval in your life from others and extend that onto your face and how that could be a burden if you have a skin disease. Uh, further on, in terms of whether you're a narcissistic type of individual and you can't have anything going wrong in your life, including uh, the signs of ageing or skin disease, um, and also, uh, as we, I think we were mentioning earlier, in terms of this COVID period, you can't control uh, climate change. You Ola was mentioning from some teenagers' experience, you can't control this, you can't control that anymore. But can you control how you look on Instagram? Can you control what products you have on your face or what Botox injections to get, etc., if you have the money to pay for it? So that level of control is also quite interesting. But going back in a sense to what the skin is, the skin is what we call the integumentary system or the integument. This is this definition. It's basically from the word to cover, and then interestingly, the Wikipedia definition that I looked at also includes to cloak or to disguise, and I think that's quite an interesting concept also of the skin because this, we see a lot of, of, of disguising going on in the context of the skin. So when you get into that kind of terrain of cloaking or disguising via your skin, you're then kind of moving from a biological skin to very much a social skin. And I think it's very important to think about 
the, uh, all the kind of multitude of virtues and sins that come with that uh, interface of the biological and the social, and how that then changed from being in the prime of your life at 18, for example, and then as you move through the later uh, periods of your life. Uh, so this is, I think, an interesting quote by this Koblenzer, uh, uh, skin as an envelope of self, the visible manifestation of, of personal identity. And I think that's uh, look, looking back at you from the mirror every morning. You can't help but, but, but remind, be reminded of that. And the other thing to mention, because of the hardwiring of the skin into all your neural, your immuno, your endocrine, uh, uh, hard plumbing in the body, it's an immediate showcase and display of all your, your, your inner feelings. Some people can disguise it with poker-style uh, kind of physiology, poker face-style physiology, but others, as you can see in that woman there, will immediately flush uh, when they are anxious. So they immediately give the game away, as it were, in terms of their exposure via their skin. So the skin is very powerful in that, in, in that context. And that's really just picked up again in terms of even in the absence of an actual disease or frank disease, if you do not, if your skin doesn't feel good, you're likely to uh, have an interface of biology and uh, psychology. So uh, my uh, contention is that skin does not simply age gracefully. The age impact on skin can really, really be a nuisance and awkward and potentially uh, quite devastating. So if you look across the global burden of all diseases in the entire, entire body, skin disease is the fourth leading cause of non-fatal disease burden. So it has a very disproportionate impact on disease burden uh, in the world today. And if you look through the, um, the, the, the different decades of life, you can see how skin diseases really ramp up. You know, as you can see, uh, I think the last uh, age uh, period there is over 80 you know, actual medically, you know, determined skin diseases ramp up at a rate of knots after you say about 30 or 40. Uh, so I don't think that's something to be trivialised. You know, it, it, un uncomfortable or discoloured or blemished, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, skin can have a big impact on uh, personal anxiety levels, depression, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So uh, I think for for the elder community, we have to take into consideration uh, the impact of skin on how they. Uh, how they deal, deal with their lives. Uh, prevalence of skin, as I've shown in that particular diagram, uh, rapidly increases with age. So by the age of um, most people over 65 will have one or two different skin conditions that a dermatologist would actually be able to treat. And 10% of those over 70 have up to 10 different things going on with their skin. You know, highly itchy, but they can't get anything to, to, to deal with the itch, for example. Keep them up through, during the night. It can really be quite quite devastating. Uh, so we shouldn't be viewing um, skin um, uh, you know, issues in the elderly as cosmetic when there could be treatments out there to very quickly you know, alleviate them of this. They shouldn't have to stoically you know, deal with this if, if they want to be proud, ageing people. Uh, they should be able to have access to that. Now, of course, there's obviously um, uh, limits here, and there's a huge amount of rhetoric and signs around um, the anti-aging discourse for skin. And this is a very interesting uh, review I read uh, in preparation for this pre presentation. So we've kind of gone away from the God-given um, kind of uh, uh, skin um, uh, you know, endowments that you may have to what technology and science can give you in terms of 
uh, dealing with your battle with how your skin is behaving. Uh, so this is really around the you know, winners and losers in this scientific uh, uh, conquest. So that's very dominant in a lot of the adverts that you'll see for skincare is this very strong scientific and technological view. There's also um, a, a view from this kind of media perception that this is really um, agelessness as a genetic impulse. You know, that we can do it. There is a button to press. We should do it. You know, our, our entire kind of uh, pushing the envelope throughout all our evolution is to go push forward, push forward, push forward. And if something can be done, it should be done. I mean, something technically can be done, it should be done. Because this is our genetic, you know, push that has kept um, the species um, moving in a particular direction. So you see a lot of things like rebooting, rejuvenating, reactivating, re-re-re, this constant need to, uh, to push uh, forward. There's also then uh, a kind of sense about the nature, the natural, the nature link with, with our skin. So you'll see a lot of pushing around the anti-aging skin lobby around getting closer to nature. You know, um, you'll see kind of advertisements in a natural setting with kind of natural kind of smooth rolling hills type of thing. You know, this type of um, elixir uh, as, uh, 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 for skin in particular. And then there's also a huge push to create the myth, the magic, the, an aura around that, you know, the, the miraculous transformation you can get if you do this. Uh, so it's non-scientific, but it's equally seductive, you know, in terms of, of the individual. Uh, what's worrying, however, is that a lot of the advertising around this have got bright, dark contrasts, very, very striking binary contrasts. And typically... The beautiful face is the light face, is the reflective face. So I think that has a large impact in terms of how individuals with different geographic ancestries can link in with this type of, of media. So I'm going to give you a very quick run through some of the you know, state of the economics here. Massive, absolutely massive. So cosmetics is 0.6 trillion in 2021 when global drug sales, sales for, for prescription medicine was just a third higher. Many, many more chemicals will come onto your body through personal care and cosmetics than would ever touch your body from a drug you'd get from, from, from a doctor. So we can't underestimate the power of this. And the anti-aging bit of this market is rapidly rising. It's really rapidly rising. And it's all about the money, clearly. It's an, eco it's an economic driver. But they're telling us it's all about the science. So you see in this uh, set of images here, constant reminder for science, stem cells, immortal, as you can see in the lower picture down there, lab series, the constant reminder, the technical um, prowess of modern humans is that we can do it. You just need to get on and buy the stuff and then you'll be sorted. You, know? um, you wouldn't believe the, the intoxication of some of the commercials. This is one from a L'Oreal company, Yves Saint Laurent, and you can see there that they're, they're proclaiming they're standing on the shoulders of these Nobel giants. Um, they wouldn't have gotten to this um, 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 bottle if they didn't have seven Nobel Prizes in the drawer, uh, one of which was for glycans, this special type of um, uh, innovation that came out in the 21st century. Super, super, uh, you know, scientifically motivated. Again, the contrasting faces in the background uh, again and again pushed through. Look at the prices. There's one there, 1,136 uh, euro for one pot, you know? So, this, so are you worth it? 
Do you deserve it? How persuasive can you get? So really, really phenomenal, right? Is there a gender gap is obviously the, the, the next thing to, to ask yourselves. And I think there's some interesting quotes up there. Beauty work uh, continues to be more salient for women because of cultural double standards with very strict prescri- prescriptions for women. It should be noted that those prescriptions have become even stricter since the 1960s. They haven't become less strict. Um, this is an interesting comment of one manager. You know, I was worried the clients would think if she can't do her own moves properly, would she ever look after a client properly? You know? So it's a very interesting... This is a woman uh, manager on a, on, on, a, on, a, on a female staff member. So it's a very interesting dialogue going on. If you look at the contrast there between men and women, um, women spend on average uh, 4.9 hours a week doing themselves up, men 3.2 hours a week doing themselves up. If you look at what is the most important elements of their self-grooming, they're both the same in terms of the top one, to feel good about themselves. Uh, And you can see the top three are very, very similar. But then when you get to the fourth one from males, if I can read it from here, to please my spouse or partner. Females, not so bothered. It's quite hard to say, yeah? And then um, the the fourth one, uh, fifth one for the females was to be in control. So this control element has come in through there. So that's quite an interesting... Uh, observation of the gender gap. But back to basics. Why is skin such a good idea? Well, we started off as single-cell organisms. We interpreted our entire environment by what happened, what was coming through our our external surface. And then when we started getting involved in little collectives, we had little sensing kind of mechanisms through our skin to surrounding organisms, so-called quorum sensing, as we have now in, in bacteria. And then we needed to have to have a little sentience in our organismal uh, uh, organization, and the skin was very important then in terms of how it interfaced with, 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 with sentinence. And the other thing to mention is that our brain and our skin co-develop during em- embryogenesis. They are essentially building inside the, em- the embryo at the same time and inside the fetus at the same time. There's an incredible intersection between the brain and the skin, as I'll show you later. The five best ways to encourage optimal baby or toddler brain development. The first one, hugs. Communication through touch and through the skin. Really, really important. And that's because of this. Essentially, we have two skins. Skin on the inside, the gut, and skin on the outside, which is what we see. So that's quite interesting in the context of the incontinence story. It's essentially, potentially, also an impact of the internal skin. But the brain access is incredibly important. We have flare-ups of skin disease uh, with, 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 with uh, problems with you know, stress and psychosocial stress, for example. So it's all incredibly linked, the brain, the gut, and the skin. There's a long-standing association between attractive skin, attractive person, and then good person. Uh, and this had impacts both uh, educationally and occupationally and all sorts of rewards. So attractiveness is viewed as an important and valuable commodity. Do you fight against that? Do you deal with that? Do you kind of ignore that it exists? How do you deal with something that is so powerful within uh, the, uh, the psychology of, of, of humans? Um, babies will even react. Uh, babies who are pretty or attractive will already pick that up from the earliest days if they're constantly being being um, uh, interacted with by individuals or a, a less attractive baby may think, well, nobody's coming around to give me a tickle or give me a hug. Are they already, at, at that very er- early age, understanding that perhaps they don't cut it in terms of the, uh, the, the beauty or the skin stakes? Grade inflation is also higher 
grades are also higher in individuals who are, in pupils that are more attractive. They're less likely to get heavy sentences compared to less attractive individuals. This is all, I think, mostly subconscious. I don't think judges are actively trying to segregate out individuals on the basis of their looks in order to have different types of, sen of, of sentencing. Um, and that really kind of picks it up even further, suggesting emotional intimacy can only happen if individuals are attractive, which of course is all nonsense, but it is very persuasive um, 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 all the same. So I just want to come back a little bit to the, our lonely skin, this issue particularly for the aged, uh, for the fourth um, age, if there is a sense of social isolation or aversion or whatever, um, it's really, really important that the impact of humans that are untouched uh, is, are, are not trivial. And I just took that uh, T-shirt thing from a, somebody sent to me on a WhatsApp. I thought it was hilarious in terms of going through 2019, 2020, 2021. And what are we doing in the context of responding to COVID if everybody is going to be even further you know, fragmented or and if the communities are even more anatomized and if the solidarity that Anne was talking about earlier, away from this cult of the individual, is even more hard uh, to get to. Um, this is an excellent TED talk, if you get a chance to, to hear it, is by a neuroscientist who's looking at touch, um, Helena uh, Backlund-Vassling, and she has been looking at some of the um, structures that you can probably see here, which, are, which is the machinery in your skin that deals with sensing all these different nerve fibres. But the one she's particularly interested in is the red one, that is like a, uh, it's like a tree that goes right up to the upper part of the skin and that will be very easily activated when you touch the surface of the skin. And so these are called CT fibres and they're very, very important because once they're activated, they will actually then trigger that part of your brain, the emotional centres of, of your brain. And uh, the, the, the way it's done, so in terms of the light touch and the moving touch and the skin-to-skin, -skin, 30 degrees centigrade, 30 degrees centigrade interfacing of two um, faces of skin, in a sense, is very, very important. Again, you know, uh, stressing this evolutionarily constructed requirement for human-human contact, uh, and particularly uh, through the skin. And here we can see it at all different stages. We can see it as the, maybe the, the, young, the, the older sister uh, getting a sense of what her new sibling will uh, be, and be and be like. You have the uh, new sibling on the way out, pushing against the, uh, the belly of the mother, trying to touch the mother from within. Uh, you have the father-child uh, bond there. Uh, and, and you can see it in all different contexts. You know, skin-skin uh, contact is incredibly important throughout all ages. And social isolation of older individuals. Um, I know uh, Dana had shown uh, that lovely Im image of the carer kissing the forehead of of the, uh, the elderly person. That, in fact, that touch is likely to be very, very important biologically and therefore then on to, uh, uh, hopefully, uh, perceptually by the individual. And so um, this is a very interesting quote in terms of uh, how uh, we live our lives. So there, there, it's a consequence of, you know, um, hard, fast living that we will burn out at a certain stage. We're machines in that sense. So it's very interesting that James Dean would quote this. This is largely, I guess, long before he ever thought he was going to be in this category himself when he actually uh, crashed. But there was a real sense that, you know, um, only the, the good die young, you know, and you have this kind of uh, live your life to the absolute hilt, and if you're gone by 40, who cares? You've had 40 great years. 
So how do we kind of deal with that context in terms of um, living to 80, 90 and, and 100 years? And this is all really down to this uh, very built, uh, uh, built-in nature of humans to seek pleasure, this kind of Epicurean, somewhat hedonistic uh, tendency we have as humans. So um, if people want to lie on a beach you know, in Barbados in their 20s and 30s and 40s, well, they can expect that their skin is going to look 90 at 70 or 100 at 80. So what do we do in terms of, of being in the driving seat with our skins in terms of the perception we have of our age as much as how other people uh, also respond uh, to our age? So there are certain individuals that are addicted to the types of behaviour that will age them. So here we have this lady who obviously been on the beach too long, but we now know scientifically that when the sun hits our skin, we have more endorphins being produced, beta-endorphin in particular. This gives us the high that we think, oh, I feel much better now that I'm out in the sun. The skin, of course, is ageing at a uh, 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 top rate of knots and will eventually then cause that individual, if they have money, to wonder what type of intervention should I now do to undo the very things that they personally wanted to do or got pleasure from, from, from doing. So I'm just going to show a few examples here of the um, self-fulfilling prophecies that are around uh, you know, ageing and skin. Um, so skin clearly is the primary uh, you know, contributor to how we would evaluate somebody's age. So if you've got 100 people up there, you line them all up, you could go up pretty close to them, and you were asked to judge what age they are whether you saw their whole body naked or not, if you just looked at their face and just their crow's feet or whatever, you could pretty much accurately tell if they hadn't got themselves Botox to, the, to an inch of their lives. But if you just looked at their actual face, you'd get a lot of information from that. So and you can see how that uh, component of usefulness, particularly in the West, um, has been so uh, dominant because of the way this uh, world has been so uh, uh, heavily mediated. Um, so I'm going to pass on a little bit uh, faster because I'm taking a little bit longer in time. So the data, is there any hard data around this? Well, there seems to be. In this particular study from 1985, uh, they had two cohorts uh, in this particular study. They had a cohort that, um, uh, of different attractiveness level, and they indicated that the attractive individuals had actually uh, measurably happier lives, more satisfied with their lives, socially more active, than their um, age-matched, um, more unattractive um, uh, seniors. So does, does that have long-term implications? Should we be encouraging older individuals to be as attractive as they can be if it's going to bring with it a better feeling of, of, of satisfaction, of, of, of comfort or whatever uh, with their particular lives? And this is a very interesting set uh, of statistics here. It was a longitudinal study. They looked at 24 age-related functions, and they compared the, the 15% most attractive group with the 15% least attractive group. And these can be rather objectively uh, de determined. And there was a very significant difference in the lifespans of these individuals. So it's not just an airy-fairy perception of some superficiality. Uh, there is also uh, hardwiring from that uh, superficiality back into the depths of how our organs and, and systems are actually working. So it's not necessarily as trivial as some of the, the, those advertisements would suggest uh, the whole thing is. And this is a good example here. So there have been a couple of papers out that have shown that mortality is written in your face. Um, they've shown uh, 
when they were comparing individuals with coming from kinships of, of different longevity. Uh, could they tell, for example, if you didn't know that your grandfather or great-grandfather or great-grandmother or great-great-grandmother lived till 90, could somebody tell by looking at your face, yes, you've come from a line of long livers. You've come from a line where they're all popped or clogged at 50. And apparently you can see that in the face. And so maybe people want to disguise uh, the, the, these clues for others. And in the picture below, what they've done, they've, they've proven that it's nothing to do with the clothes you wear. It's nothing to do whether you're bald or have a full head of hair. As you can see, they've moved the hair around the, the faces. They've moved the clothes around the faces. We can still tell from the facial cues how long that individual is going to live. So that is very, very impactful in terms of indicating that it's not just a superficial covering of our important bits of our body. Psychosocial stress, very, very dramatically uh, evident in the face and in the hair. As you can see, this woman who lost her, her husband uh, during the Second World War, very significant change to the way her hair follicles responded to that psychosocial stress. We know that cortisol levels that we can measure just in the blood can immediately indicate whether that individual is from a long-living family uh, or kinship or a short-living one. So, you know, there's certain things that we could possibly alter by behaviour, but there's also some scripts that have been uh, presented to us in, in our DNA or in our epigenetics, etc., etc. So I think that's also quite important. And I'm going to finish up the last uh, three slides with, with some of the horrors of, of trying to um, deny certain realities. And, and I'm not trying to focus my attention on, on the surgeon's scalpel there with Catherine Deneuve, but... She, by any standard, she was a very, very impressive-looking woman when she was young. But she looks far... She's also very impressive now, but for the wrong reason. She has had so much surgery, she didn't kind of allow herself to continue life along the track uh, that uh, she had been uh, uh, set. Andy McDowell, an American um, model, has changed uh, track. She was kind of one of the L'Oreal I Am Worth It uh, type of individuals. She's now fed up with it. She's kind of come up with that uh, quote... She says, um, uh, I honestly, it's, it's uh, honestly, it's exhausting to have to be something that you no longer are. So she stopped dyeing her hair, for example. But that's after she was very much in the, in the kind of I'm worth it, because um, you're worth it, L'Oreal group. Jane Fonda has come out with a very strong set of statements there. So I'm not proud of the fact that I had it, uh, this, uh, plastic surgery, but I grew up so defined by my looks I was taught to think that if I wanted to be loved, I had to be thin and pretty. This leads to a lot of trouble. It's not just um, a woman. Uh, this Kenny Rogers, the singer, said, looking back at some of my uh, pictures, earlier pictures, my eyes were warmer. He more identified with himself than he does now with these uh, doctored uh, eyes. So there are a lot of these kind of uh, realizations now. And it's good that they're coming out and saying this to kind of, kind of uh, you know, put a, a prick in this balloon uh, so that it's not uh, likely to be useful. Even the Vatican is getting involved with it. Plastic surgery hides natural appearance. So it, this is from 2015. So it's, it's really something that we need to think about how much doctoring should we be doing, uh, at least surgically, in this particular context. And the last couple of slides are really to compare societies. So... The, this was an, uh, an online survey that was done by a company, GFK, and they looked for the top three reasons of trying to look good and the average weekly time. The, the, the weekly time is below um, the, the image there. But in the US, uh, from all those age groups, from 15 to 18, right up to 60 plus, 
the topmost reason for why people were involved in personal grooming or trying to look good was around uh, to feel good about themselves. It shifted a little bit in the second uh, most important area uh, in terms of um, uh, different age groups, uh, but it's quite interesting that um, over 60, um, we now have to please my spouse and partner, which I wouldn't have predicted. I would have thought that might have been at an earlier time. Um, and then in the younger age, of course, you'd expect to see things like to make a good impression on people of the opposite sex. So these are shifting reasons for how people are integrating their behaviours around their personal time. If you go to China, very, very different. So I'm going to flip back and see that all age groups to feel good about myself was number one. China, you can see as, as you get older, to set a good example for my children, became very, very dominant in terms of how they were presenting themselves. And that may be influential if, if they feel they have dementia and may be feeling that they are not presenting the right face to their children that they previously had. So that's going to probably put a lot of pressure and strain on individuals. But it's very interesting that if you flick between these countries, the top three reasons for having a face to meet the faces that you meet are very different and are very different through the different, uh, different ages. So with that, I'd like to thank you for your attention and hopefully I didn't go on too long. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Framing Aging. For more information on the project and to access podcasts and videos from our events, check out the project website at framingaging.ucd.ie.